The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 14. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we are in Mark chapter 14, verses 66. Um, I had now listen. I had our reader include verses 29 through 31 and 53 to 54 uh, because Mark has purposefully weaved this story of Peter in and out of the story of Jesus. Remember, the book of Mark is the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter. So as Peter is telling this story of Jesus's arrest and trial, he's also giving a kind of a biographical sketch of his own trial, right? He's telling the story of Jesus's trial, but he's also seeing that there was more than one person on trial this night. Jesus was on trial, but so was Peter. Last week, we took a really close look at the trial of Jesus. It was an illegal trial full of betrayal, manipulation, entrapment, and physical abuse. In the midst of all that trouble, however, Jesus remains fully obedient to God and steadfast. Even when he had the opportunity to to get a way out, uh, he even makes a bold confession that seals his fate, saying, in essence, I am the Son of God. Do your worst. And then Jesus receives a judgment that, of course, he does not deserve. This Kangaroo court passes the unjust sentence of death upon him, and still Jesus remains fully obedient to God and the scriptures, never wavering. But Mark and Peter want us to take a look at a different trial this morning. This morning, we're going to look at the trial of Peter, where Jesus was on trial before those in power. Jesus, or Peter stands before a servant girl and unnamed bystanders. Where Jesus' trial took place upstairs at the high priest's house, Peter's trial takes place informally below in the courtyard. 
Where Jesus was steadfast and unmovable, Peter is weak and unfaithful. Where Jesus confesses his true identity boldly, Peter lies and denies any relationship with his Lord and Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. And what we're going to learn today, uh, hopefully, are three things. One, we are all on trial. Two, we all need an advocate. And three, our advocate determines our outcome. Okay? Our advocate determines our outcome. Now, let me get into this. As we look at Peter's trial today, we notice that he isn't actually standing before a legal court giving deposition. His is an informal court. As Jesus is being violently carried away in chains to an upper room to stand before the high priest, Peter secretly falls back and he secretly follows Jesus at a distance. He keeps this safe distance between him and Jesus, right? I'm sure the words of his, his own words, his own confession were ringing in his ears. I won't betray him. I won't deny him. So he's sneaking around, following Jesus at a safe distance. Peter knows that whatever Jesus has done, whatever he's being accused of, he knows he's also guilty by association. Peter's been walking with Jesus and following Jesus for about three years now. So he knows whatever Jesus has done, he's done as well. And just hours before this scene, we all know, Peter boldly declares, even if all the other disciples abandon you, I will not fall away from you. I will follow you even to death. It's no doubt that Peter, you know, when he said that, he absolutely believed his own confession. He loved Jesus, and the thought of betraying him after everything he's seen and how Jesus has called him and Jesus enabled him to walk on water for a split second in time, after everything Peter's seen and experienced by living in community with Jesus for these three years, it's no doubt that there, this betraying Jesus was the furthest thing from Peter's mind. He couldn't even imagine himself ever betraying his Lord and Savior. And yet, this night, the unthinkable has happened to him. Armed guards have arrested Jesus, and now the rumor of crucifixion has been heard. How could this be happening? No doubt, that's what's going on in Peter's mind right now, all the disciples' minds. And it's in this moment that Peter finds himself on trial. Verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. See, Peter is in the courtyard here. He's standing before an informal court, but he's before a court, no doubt. She says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But Peter denies it. I don't even understand what you're talking about, he says. Peter plays ignorant. And then Interesting, look what he does. But he denied it, saying, I, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway 
and the rooster crowed. So Peter literally walks further away from Jesus. Think of this. Jesus is in the upper room, and Peter is in the courtyard, and, he's, and there's, there's barrels, there's fires around, and it's pitch black. Obviously, there's no electricity. You can only see each other by firelight. And this girl sees him and says, you were with Jesus, and he denies it, and now he literally moves further away from Jesus, out of the firelight, where hopefully no one will recognize his face. But the servant girl was not easily dismissed. She said to those standing around, no, no, this man is one of them. And again, Peter denies it. And the bystanders say, no, certainly you're one of them, for you are Galilean. Now, it seems that Peter's Galilean accent has given him away. And this time, to stop all further inquiries on the matter, Peter curses and says, I don't even know the man whom you speak. Let's read it. Verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't even know this man whom you speak. Now, this is interesting. Commentaries differ widely. I read several, many commentaries this week on this one phrase, Peter cursed and swore, I don't even know the man. And the reason why commentaries differ so much is in the Greek, the word himself is not present. So we don't really know why he's cursing. We know what kind of why he's cursing, but we don't know what he's cursing. Is he just cursing? Beep. I don't even know the beeping man, right? He's swearing. Is he cursing himself? The ESV scholars believe, yeah, he's invoking a curse on himself. I'll be cursed. I don't even know the guy. Other commentators know he's cursing them for asking the question. And he, he's saying, you know, get out of here. And you don't even know. You, you don't know what you're talking about. And, I mean, the scholars are all over the map. But uh, several scholars said, no, no, no. What this is, by the context, we can say that all of those things might be true, but, that, but Mark leaves it open because we, they, they want us to think that he's just cursing himself, cursing Christ, that he's, this is not just a denial. Peter wants us to know as he's retelling his story, no, no, I didn't just kind of like, you know, accidentally deny him. Like this is a denial with a curse. Like when it came, you know, when rubber meets the road and Jesus' darkest moment, I didn't just sneak away into the night. I cursed him, emphatically denied him. In this courtyard, Peter, the steadfast, immovable one we've seen so far, the one who's very confident in his own ability, Peter denies Jesus, he denies himself. He contradicts his own pledge of allegiance that he uttered just hours early. And he says, I don't even know the man. He, he lies. He even ends up cursing himself or cursing Jesus, just cursing. Showing us that what Peter did was absolutely emphatic. He had done something that he never thought he would and now there's no hiding from it. Peter was guilty before God he was guilty before Jesus. He was guilty before these little servant girl. He was guilty before his own conscience. And immediately, 
Peter, interestingly enough, doesn't hear, you know, a gavel come down and his verdict read out before a court. No, Jesus had prepared a different sound to ring out in this trial. Immediately after, G- after Peter denies him three times, the rooster crows. And the words of Jesus come back to him in vivid detail before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And this kind of brings everything, the whole scene around in the finality of this trial. And subsequent now, all this judgment, everything just kind of comes home to him in this one moment. Peter has this realization as Jesus was on trial upstairs, I was on trial right here and I didn't even know it. And I failed him. I failed the one I love. I betrayed Jesus and now I stand condemned as a failure, a turncoat and an unfaithful follower. And look how the section of scripture finishes. And he broke down and wept. This is a dark moment in our story. It's a dark moment in the gospel of Mark. It's a dark moment in the life of Jesus and in the life of Peter. It ends in a dark moment. And Peter, realizing what he's done, realizing I was on trial and I didn't even know it and I failed, I failed the one I love, he breaks down and he weeps. Now here's what Peter and Mark want us as readers of this gospel to see and understand. Okay? What's going on here? If God has really sent his one and only son into this world to live the perfect life to show us the one and only way to know God and enter into eternal life with God and eternal happiness with God, then, in a sense, we are all on trial. If that's really happened, if God has really sent his son into this world, we are all on trial. And here's the big question. How have you responded to Jesus? That's the question. Have you been faithful to him like he's been faithful to you? Have you been perfectly faithful to him like he's been faithful to you? Now, that's an easy question for me to answer. My youth pastor made this one really easy for me. Um, in high school, he asked us all to wear these rainbow-colored WWJD bracelets. And the first time a pretty girl asked me what the bracelet was on my wrist, I'm pretty sure I cursed Jesus right there, just like Peter did. No, no, nothing, it's nothing. I don't know what this thing is. I think we've all denied Jesus in one way or another, but some of us, we might not realize that. We might think, the verdict on our faithfulness might not be that clear to us. You know what? I, I meet a lot of people that say, I don't have any problem with Jesus. I don't think he has any problem with me. I'm a pretty good person. I consider myself neutral. I don't think I've actively betrayed Jesus in any way. Now, I can see how you might think that. But what's interesting here, and it sounds, you know, many of us, in our, especially in our culture today, um, we've, we don't think or we don't believe that we're actually on trial. Well, any of us don't believe there's an actual judge out there anyways. We've, we've read it a lot today. Christians do believe that, that Christ will come back and judge the quick and the dead or the living and the dead. And we do believe we're going to stand before 
um, Christ someday. And there is an ultimate judge out there who's seeing everything and keeping track of everything. And he knows our deeds and our misdeeds. He knows if we've, we've been faithful or unfaithful. But there's many people in our culture today that don't believe that. They say, I'm my own judge. I create my own reality. I create my own morality. That morality is just a construct that I determine what's right and what's wrong, or maybe it's socially created or culturally created. But what's interesting here, even if that's the case for you, even if you are like, well, I determine my own reality, I'm my own judge, I, you know, I don't think there's this ultimate judge, I think you realize, if, if you have your own standard, you realize that you're still on trial. Even if you are the judge, you are still on trial. We see this with Peter. See, Peter doesn't just betray Jesus. He does, and that's ultimate, and it's terrible. But Peter also betrays himself. See, he said, I will never do that. And then just a few short hours later, he does the same, does the very thing that he says he would never do. Now, how many of us have done that in our life? I will never do that. Whatever. We draw the line. I will never, you fill in the blank. I will never cheat on my taxes. No, we, most of us haven't said that one. I would never have an affair, right? I would never, whatever it is, right? We all have this standard that we've set, and we've said, you know what, maybe growing up, that's something I would, that's a line I would never cross. But how many, and many of us have even made that claim to God. God, thank you for your forgiveness. I'll never do that thing again. A day later, a week later, a month later, a year later. See? So if we are our own judge, and we've made our own standard, this thing I, haven't, I will never do, and we've still done it, we failed our own standard. Right? We, and what do we do when we fail? our own standards. See, God has built humans in such a way that we have consciences, right? And our consciences know that we're always on trial. Even when we think we're our own judge, we still, we still feel guilty when we do something wrong, right? Even if no one else knows about it, no one knows the thing that you've done, you maybe said you would never do it or never do it again, and you did it, and nobody found out, and you think you got away with it, still, at night, your conscience knows you're on trial, and you have to do what? Constantly try to explain things away, try to justify things, try to figure out some way that what you did was excusable. That's my first point. Okay, first point, we're all on trial. Everyone knows in some sense that they're on trial. Everyone knows that their misdeeds are being noticed by God, by others, at the very least, by themselves. And these misdeeds need to be dealt with in some way. We all know that we're on trial. But here's my second point. It flows right up from my first. Because we are all on trial, we all need an advocate Okay, we all need an advocate. Now, this is interesting. An advocate is a lawyer or a representative that stands before us and our judge making a case for us. Okay, they build a case, present the case, argue our case, hopefully uh, help us out, right, of our predicament. Now, I realize that some of us maybe say, you know, no, I, I don't think I need anyone to, to be my advocate. I don't need anyone to stand before the bar of the court of justice or stand before God. You know, I don't think I need that. I don't have a guilty conscience like that. I don't think I need an advocate. Well, what do you do when someone confronts you 
with something you've done wrong. It could be at work, it could be in school, it could be a friend. When they confront you on something, you lied. And now your lie has been found out. What do you do? Do you own it? Say, you know what? You're right. <laughs> I confess I'm a liar. I'm glad you finally found that out about me. It's been weighing on my conscience quite often. Now that you know, it's just out there. I feel so much better. I'm a liar. Now let's just move forward in our friendship. Right? No. You don't say, I'm a liar. You don't say, you're right. You don't say, I'm guilty. Someone confronts you, even if you know you're wrong. You know you did something that you wish you wouldn't have done. What do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You, try, you build your case right? You go into your mind and you concoct this case and you have every extenuating circumstance that relates to why you behave the way you behave and you lay your case out in the best possible light you can. See, what happened was, and you just lay it all out. Now, it's funny because this kind of just happens. We see this complete, if anybody knows, uh, the little app, there's an app, we have, an, we have in Davenport here now, it's called Uber, right? And you need a ride, and you, you want a taxi ride, or, you know, whatever, you, you push this little app, and anybody can be an Uber driver, and they pick you up, and they drive you home, and it all pays through the app, it's really quick, really neat. Well, in Florida, a few months, or about a month or so ago, this woman went berserk on an Uber driver, absolutely berserk, somebody stole her Uber cab, or whatever, and took it, and she went crazy, and it was a big hubbub on the internet and, and then what, and the, the shame that it brought to her because things started coming out that she went absolutely berserk, treated someone like they were less than dirt. I mean, every cuss word, every name you could think of just went crazy on them and it comes out and this is this prestigious doctor, this prestigious female doctor and she comes out and what happens? You're confronted, it's there, somebody recorded it. It's on video in front of you and you look like a crazy person. I don't care how many degrees you have on the wall, I don't care how many awards you've won, you look psycho, right? You are, you are verifiably psycho, a psychopath, you look crazy, right? And everybody's like, look at this crazy person. You know, her mom finds, everybody sees it, right? Well, what do you do? You gotta build your case. You can't just go, I, look what I did. I'm crazy. <laughs> she builds this elaborate, it was the worst day of my life. My boyfriend just broke up with me. My cat got struck by lightning. I don't know. Like she just builds this elaborate case. Can't just own it. Now, we see this play out in our news. We see this play out in our society. But how often do we do that? Maybe not outwardly, but at least inwardly we do it. At least inwardly. See, most of us, I would say all of us, even if your lies never come out, this is just one example, lying, right? Even if your lies never come out, we all do this internal justification. We know we're on court and we know we need an advocate and we step in and we try to be our own advocate. We try to justify our actions and justify our misdeeds, even to ourselves, we try to convince ourselves that what we did really wasn't that bad. We know that we're on trial and we know that we are our own advocates. And what does this do? This creates an enormous 
amount of emotional trauma and emotional distress, really distress that's in our soul and it can hinder our sleep and it can destroy our relationships. If you've ever laid in bed at night and you've gotten yourself into a situation and it's just going over and over and over in your mind, how to keep it from coming out, how to change the narrative so it doesn't sound as bad as it actually was, how to get people from finding out, how to get your wife or your husband from finding out. What are we going to do with God? God knows it. What, am I going to hide it? How am I going to bring it out? Just all of this emotional trauma and this stress that can literally affect us physically, you can develop ulcers, and you can literally, your nerves can be frayed and just uh, have a nervous breakdown. Can, all this stress in our bodies has physical ramifications takes a lot of soul work to be our own advocate, to be the one who goes before the bar of justice and, and tries to argue our case. It takes a lot of soul work. It's exhausting work to do that. See, we are all on court, and we all have inner lawyers that try to get a not guilty plea for us. That's what we want to hear, right? not guilty. But there are some things, if we're honest, there's some things that we've done in our life that are so bad, we struggle to forgive ourselves for. Isn't that true? That's the, that's the thing about being your own judge and being your own lawyer. What if you decide, I am pretty bad? What if you as the judge go, I don't have any leniency for you. Like, you did what you said you never would do. You failed. You are guilty. You can never live with yourself. You can never forgive yourself. And just rehearse it, rehearse it over and over and over. And many times, especially if it's a relational thing, that you bring that toxicity to ne the next relationship and the next relationship and the next relationship, thinking that you're somehow doing yourself or God a service by failing to forgive yourself and wallowing in this and just constantly trying to be your own advocate and your own judge. See, we're all on trial. We all have these inner lawyers that are trying to get this not guilty plea. But what happens when you've done something that you never thought you'd do and you can't forgive yourself for? Now listen, that's what, that's what happened with Judas. And that's where we see our third point today. We're all on trial. We all need an advocate. But here's the interesting thing. Our advocate determines our outcome. Okay? Our advocate determines our outcome. See, Judas betrays Jesus, and Peter denies him with a curse. And yet, these two men's stories have drastically different outcomes, right? Judas can't deal with the guilt. He's got the inner turmoil. He's got the exhaustion, the emotional stress, probably literally having a, an emotional breakdown. And what does he do? Judas hangs himself in guilt, commits suicide. While Peter becomes the chief apostle. He becomes the founder of the church in Jerusalem. He becomes a gospel preacher extraordinaire. Jesus comes back to Peter and tells him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my people. But why? Why, why this difference? Why does 
why can Judas not deal with what he's done, but Peter has found a way to deal with the sins that he's committed, the betrayal that he's committed? Why? This is why. Judas, see, hold on. They both, right now in our story, they're both in, in the, almost the exact same spot. Judas, once he betrays Jesus, he weeps, he's broken, he gives the money back. So it wasn't just greed, right? He gives the money back, he's ashamed at what he's done. And look at Peter right here. Peter breaks down and he's weeping. Both these men are brought low. Both of these men are broken at this spot. But what makes the difference? Judas was his own advocate. Judas was his own lawyer. Judas said, I'll deal with my sins on my own. I'm a grown man. I don't need anybody to be my advocate. I'll deal with this. I'll figure a way out. Maybe I'll say I'll never do it again. Maybe I'll get a better education. Maybe I'll move on and prove something with my life. I'll be my own advocate. But he couldn't deal with the guilt. He couldn't deal with his own misdeeds and handle his trial on his own. But Peter... Peter has a different advocate. Now, we don't have this in the Gospel of Mark, but we do have it in the Gospel of Luke. And on the night that Peter can, right, listen, this is right before, literally in the same, or you know, the next verse, Peter says, I'll never deny you, okay? But in Luke, listen how Luke records it. Put that on the screen if we would. Luke 22, 31 through 32. I hate these screens this far forward, but we have to. Is it up there yet? No, I can't tell. There it is. This is what Luke records, uh, part of the conversation at the Last Supper between Jesus and Peter. It says, Simon, Simon, and Simon is another word for Peter. Simon, Simon, Peter, Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now that right there, I have prayed for you, that's an advocate, that's a lawyer, that's a person that stands between the judge, the jury, right? And the, uh, whoever, the, whatever that, the word's not coming to me right now. What? No, that's not what I meant, but whoever the dude is who's on trial, whatever that word is that I can't find up right now. Huh? Defendant, thank you very much podcast, it was the defendant. That's what we were talking about. (laughs) Exactly. So Jesus is at the Last Supper. Now, this is interesting. He says, Peter, I've prayed for you. And if we go to John 17, Jesus says, I've only prayed for those that the Father gave me. I don't pray for the world. That's what Jesus says in John 17. And he says to the Father, I've never lost one that the Father gave me. The one that it looks like I lost was never given to me. That's the son of destruction, the son of perdition. That's Judas. So so Jesus says in John 17, he says, I've never lost one that the father gave for me. And listen what he says to Peter. Satan wants you, but I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. Now, if we look at this situation, we're looking, well, Jesus' prayer didn't really happen. It didn't really do much good, did it? Because obviously, Peter, Peter failed. Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think Peter fails, but I don't think his faith actually fails. Look what Jesus continues to say. He says that your faith, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And look, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned again, 
Strengthen your brothers. This is what Jesus says. I have prayed that your faith may not fail. You're going to fail. When you turn again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows he's going to fail. Jesus knows he's going to repent. Now, how can Jesus know that if Jesus isn't in charge of that? See, Jesus is in control of that. Jesus is in absolute control of that. Jesus is sovereignly in control of that. He says, Peter, you're not as good as you think you are. You're going to fail. But I've prayed for you that your faith, because the object of your faith is me, this will not fail. And so when you repent, when you turn again, do the work I've called you to do and strengthen your brothers. Jesus is the reason Peter repents. Jesus is in control of it. Jesus is his advocate. He's standing before the bar of justice on the behalf of, on the behalf of Peter. This statement shows us that Jesus is Peter's advocate and his advocacy determines his outcome. Hear that. This isn't up in the air. Peter, you're going to fail huge. And I'm really hoping the stars would align. I'm really hoping you're in a good mood. You're fully caffeinated. And that you'll just feel this, you know, I'm just hoping somehow you'll repent and you'll find your way back into my community and you'll find your way back and to leave my church. Man, I'm going to be really stressed out about this as I'm on the cross and dying. Oh, I really hope Peter, Peter, come on, man. No, Jesus is in absolute control. Peter's advocate determines his outcome. Jesus says, yes, you will fail, but your faith will not. When you repent, when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus can say this. Your faith will not fail because why? I have prayed for you. You will fail, but you're also going to repent and be my apostle. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? Both were sinners, but Jesus prayed for Peter. Jesus was Peter's advocate. See, every single human being, as I close, every single human being, they're either a Judas or Peter. See, we all sin. That's not the, that's not the issue. You're going to betray Jesus. You're going to betray God. You're going to betray yourself. That's not the issue. We all do. We're all going to do it. We've all done it already. The issue is, are you a Judas or are you a Peter? See, Judas, he says, I'll be my own advocate. I'll try to deal with my sin on my own. How do I do that? I'll make more resolutions. I'll try harder. I'll read my Bible more. I'll pray more. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'll do better next time. Or forget it, there is no judge. I'll do what I want to do. That's how Judas tries to handle it. Be your own lawyer, be your own advocate, etc. But Peter, Peter handles it differently. Peter lets Jesus represent him. Jesus pray. Jesus prayed for me. Jesus is my advocate. Jesus is the one that can stand before the judgment seat for me. Let Jesus go before God on your behalf. That's the two options. As a member of the human race, we can try to handle our sin and be our own lawyer like Judas, or we can let Jesus represent us like Peter. Listen to this. John, the Apostle John writes in 1 John, my little children, 
And he's not writing to little children. That's just the warm affection of an elder, of a, of a, of a pastor. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might, may not sin. Now listen to this. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is, here's a big word, the propitiation for our sins. This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is currently standing at the right hand of God, advocating for his people. Jesus is our lawyer standing between us and God. And John there calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, Jesus is perfect and has perfectly pleased God in every way. So he's fully and completely and totally righteous. But then G John goes on to say, Jesus is our propitiation for our sins. Now, until, and this is a big statement, but until you understand what that word means, I don't think you can ever be fully happy. You will never be able. See, this is what Christianity does. Christianity puts to death the inner lawyer. Christianity, I'm going to say it violently, cuts the throat of the inner lawyer inside of us that's always trying to prove ourselves, always trying to get ourselves out, always trying to get the not guilty plea, always trying to work ourselves out of a situation. Christianity kills that, and this word propitiation shows us how, but if we don't understand it, we'll never get it, and you'll never get the joy that it brings when the inner lawyer finally dies. Now, what that term propitiation means is the complete and total turning away of just wrath by the offering of a gift. Now, let me explain it like this. I owe you a million dollars. You take me to court, and I am ordered to pay the million dollars plus interest. I stood before the court. They say, you're guilty. You owe them a million dollars. You have to play, pay the million dollars plus interest. I cannot pay. I have to go to jail. Now, interestingly enough, someone's there. Maybe it's, I'll just use this as an example. My advocate, my lawyer stands up and says, sir, no, it was my fault. I'm going to take, I want to take his punishment. The judge says, the punishment is life in prison. The lawyer says, I know, but I'm going to take that punishment for him. The court says, okay, I'll allow you to do that. This man steps forward, takes my just punishment. Now, does the court have any wrath? Does the court have any judgment left towards me? No, absolutely not. Justice has been met. This man is being punished in my place. So the court, if someone wanted to stand up and bring another case, they would say, you can't do that. There's no case. It's already been punished. It's already been taken care of. The wrath of the court, the justice of the court has already been met, okay? That's what propitiation means. All the wrath from God towards you because of your sin has been completely met. Jesus took the wrath of God for you. Now listen, past, present, future sin all dealt with ultimately in one act. Now listen, but the story gets even better. It said Jesus Christ the righteous, right? Our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now what, what else happens? After this, a page, I'm leaving the courtroom, a page walks up to me and he says, the man who just took your punishment, your, your advocate, your lawyer, he wanted you to have this. And he hands me his trust fund that has now been signed over to me. 
Everything that this lawyer was worth is now mine. Let's just say $10 million. This lawyer was worth, he'd accumulated $10 million of righteousness and now all of this gets credited to me on my behalf. So not only does he turn away the wrath that I deserve to go to prison for the rest of my life, but he also gifted me with this credit, right? This credit into my account. He didn't just erase all the debits in my life, but he actually credited to me, in this illustration, $10 million. He took my punishment, but he also gave me his riches. In a sense, this is what Jesus has done for us. He took our punishment, but he also gives us his righteousness. A complete and alien righteousness, something I've never had before, something I've never earned before. This $10 million that came to me was a complete gift, and now it's in my bank account. And if you look at my bank account, $10 million is there. That's the way the righteousness of Christ gets credited to you when you believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for you. He turned away the wrath of God, but then he rose again and he gives you his righteousness. So now when God the Father looks at you, he sees $10 million in your bank account. He sees the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus credited to you. So when he goes to the, when the judge goes to the ledger and looks, he doesn't see well, you know, they did this yesterday and they did this. He sees the credited righteousness of Christ. Now, let me understand why this changes your life and I think why many Christians don't experience the joy it produces. One of my favorite movies of all time. Well, first off, <laughs> you guys think you know where you're going, but today you don't know where I'm going, okay? You don't, all right? Um, first off, when I experience this, that my sins have been washed away, past, present, and future. Okay, when I was young, I used to think, this is what I was taught, when I ask for forgiveness, my past sins are forgiven, and now I start over. God, and, and we heard this a lot in Kenya. God's the God of second chances. God's the God of second chances. And I had to finally stop him. I said, oh, Lord, no. That's really bad news if God's the God of second chances because I blew that like two million chances ago, right? Like I used to think when I came to Christ, my past sins were gone, and then now my future sins, you know, I had to deal with them on my own. I had to confess them every single day. I had to go through my mind and think, okay, was that really a sin? I mean, I kind of got angry. I kind of was short, but I think that one's fine, right? You have to deal with this... You're, inner lawyer thing again, right? The inner lawyer comes up, even though you're a Christian, you thought you've been acquitted. This inner lawyer comes up all the times. Did I do it? Did I know it? Was it bad? Was it not bad? Was it sin? Was it not sin? Okay. Now that reminds me of this story right here and saving private Ryan, right? They, all, this whole troop goes through uh, World War II to find this private Ryan and ultimately nearly the whole troop, a whole platoon of men or a special platoon of men ends up giving their life to save this Private Ryan. And at the very end of the movie, with, which many bad preachers have used as an example to continue this bad teaching, Tom Hanks, right? Oh, humble Tom Hanks. We love Tom Hanks. He's sitting there and he's firing at this tank and he's giving his life up for Private Ryan. And Private Ryan runs up to him and he, Hanks is dying. And Hanks looks into the eyes, the dying last words of Tom Hanks. He looks into the eyes of Private Ryan and he says, earn this. And he dies. 
And the movie, you see Tom Hanks. He's an old man, and he's at the grave of, or I mean, uh, uh, Matt Damon, Private Ryan. He's an old man, and he's at the grave of Tom Hanks, and he's weeping. And you feel this weight on him, and he's got his family behind him, and he looks like he's been successful, and he says, I hope I've done it. I don't know, I hope. Why? He knows he's on trial. He's before the bar of justice. Earned this? Have I earned it? Have I done enough? Have I been a good enough person? Did I earn this man's death for me? Now, many people think of Christianity like that, and I'm going to tell you, that is not good news. That puts a weight on you. Have I shared my faith enough today? Have I read my Bible enough today? Did I not sin enough today? And it's this inward pressure that creates an inward trauma of the soul. It makes a person's soul sick. That is not the gospel. The gospel is my inner lawyer is dead. Jesus never said earn this. He said it is finished. That enlivens the soul. That emboldens a person to, this is really good news. I can't do anything to get me out of the grace of God, right? Paul says you could go to hell. Jesus is there. How are you going to get away from the love of Christ? Go high, go low, go depth, go wide. You can't get away from the love of Christ. Once you're in Christ, you can never be kicked out of Christ because Christ is the one who's holding us. Christ is our lawyer. Christ is our advocate. Christ says to every true believer, I've prayed for you. Your faith will not fail. When you do, repent again. Strengthen your brothers. That's what he says to us. Good news that changes the way that we live here and now. No soul turmoil. Why do we confess our sins then? Because it's joyous to, because we get to, because we get to be reminded. Every week when we read those confessions, we get to be reminded of how dark we are and what Christ has done for us, right? And that just, it it brings joy to your heart. The deeper you see your sin, the darker you see the sin, the more beautiful the blood of Christ is that's filled every hole and covered every gap and cleanses of our sin. Amen? So we're all on trial. We all need an advocate, and your advocate determines your outcome. If you're your own advocate, the only answers you have are try better, act like you're the judge, try to live with your own stuff, try to deal with your own sins and misdeeds, and really, you know, that causes depression. That causes depression. Feeling the weight of your own sin and trying to manage them on your own. That causes depression. But when we see Christ as our advocate, and the advocate determines our outcome, not our good deeds, not our faithfulness, Christ determines our outcome. That brings joy. That's why it's called good news, because it's really good. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word to us. I thank you. I thank you for Peter. I thank you for Mark. I thank you that we know Peter knew this good news because he was no longer his advocate, uh, because he, he shared this story. When Mark sits down with him and says, Peter, tell me your story, Peter includes this. I betrayed him with a curse. I was just as bad as Judas. But Jesus, he was merciful. He didn't just give me more chances. He gave me a completely new righteousness. He filled me with the righteousness of Christ. Father, I pray this morning as we come to your table, we would rejoice that our sins have been forgiven. We would rejoice in your mercy. We would 
rejoice in your grace, we would rejoice in your righteousness that right now we have an advocate standing at the right hand of the Father on our behalf. And he's pleading with us and he's praying for us and our faith will not fail because Jesus cannot fail. We're going to uh, make it to heaven. We're going to end our life and we're gonna be faithful at the end of our life. We're gonna follow Jesus and continue in this life of discipleship all our life, not because we're good, but because Christ is in control and he is our advocate. You began the good work in us. You are faithful to complete it to the end. Thank you, Christ Jesus. We praise you this morning. Help us turn from our sin and turn to Christ and and take this bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us and take the cup that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us and let us eat it and drink it in this really happy meal this morning that reminds us of the work that Christ has done to redeem us and to get the not guilty plea on our behalf. In Jesus' powerful name we pray, amen.